Well, thank you again for your warm welcome this morning and for having me here. It's great to see a lot of familiar faces as I look around, particularly from my Heathmont days and my New Hope days and even the, uh, the school that my kids are now involved in at uh, Donvale Christian College. So it's great to see so many of you here this morning. I remember it was about, uh, oh, it would have been a good 30 years ago now where the, the issue of poverty hit me square between the eyes. I'll never forget it. I was on a trip to the Philippines at the time to my brother's wedding over in America, but we, uh, we dropped in at the Philippines to do nothing more than just the whole tourist thing and uh, enjoy another country's culture. And uh, these were the days of a, uh, they just on the tail end of a severe economic recession, like things were pretty tough in the Philippines at the time, but you wouldn't have known because you had to sort of look and sift through the hustle and bustle of a city that seemed to have everything that they needed. But here I was on this uh, tour of central Manila. And just on the edge of the city, I witnessed this huge discrepancy between the rich and the poor. On this bus tour, we were traveling through this suburb, which literally had grand palaces and huge homes on one side of the street. And on the other side of the very same street, you had a whole line of tin sheds for homes and kids walking around aimlessly with very little clothing on, not in school, obvious signs of poverty on that side of that. I couldn't understand how this could be. How could there be such a contrast in the very same street, why don't the people on the rich side just walk across the road and share a little bit of their abundance with those who are living an impoverished life on the other side of the street? How could this be? And it really worried me. And I remember feeling a little uneasy because it was as if God was saying to me on that bus tour, Mark, that's your side of the street. That's where you live. And it really rocked me in, in a sense. I felt quite guilty. I looked again at the poverty stricken. I was really challenged by this. And it certainly rocked my comfortable middle class suburban Melbourne lifestyle. Watching those families on the poor side of the street both challenged me and fascinated me. For the very first time in my life, to that point in time, I got a very different perspective and view on God's world. And that unease continued as we travelled through other regions where people were living in waste dump areas and, and up into the mountainous areas where there were obvious signs of poverty and unmade roads and lack of hygiene and people who were doing it really tough and unemployment and, and sickness, ravaged, people ravaged by those things, beggars in the street. Hey, my eyes were now very uh, wide open to a very different world and I really wasn't quite sure what to do with it at the time. I wonder if you've ever had a moment in life like that where the the reality of poverty has hit you square between the eyes. How did it challenge you? Did it move you? Did you were you evoked into some type of behavioural response or was it something you sort of, it was too tough to deal with and you just sort of set it to the side, walked away, ignored it and got on with life? You see, Scripture presents a vision of a world where all people, not just a select group of people, but all people everywhere get to share in the abundance of the earth and the comfort, nurture, and support of a loving community. Poverty deprives people of the opportunity of experiencing those things. Now, extreme poverty is disturbing, but it's even more disturbing when you're confronted by its reality, as I was in the Philippines all those years ago. Now, poverty is a part of our world today. It was not God's intention, but due to the inequities of this world and the selfishness of many people groups and certainly many nations... God's world is hurting. But if you listen carefully enough, you might just hear the cries of the poor over the cries of our own flesh and the cries of our self-centered society in which we live. And let me say categorically, the hunger, the pain, the deprivation, the injustice, it is real. 
And although we can become a little desensitized to it sometimes, if you open up your eyes, your ears, but most importantly your hearts, you cannot help but be gripped by its reality. And the reality is this, that in our world today, 836 million people still live in extreme poverty. 663 million people do not access a protected water source. Most of these people are poor and they live in rural areas. 2.4 billion people lack access to basic sanitation services such as toilets and latrines and of course most of us have got two or three of those in our homes. Nearly half of all deaths in children under five are attributable to undernutrition. That translates into the unnecessary loss of about 3 million young lives a year. Over 1,400 young children die each day or about 526,000 children a year from diarrhoea despite the availability of simple and effective treatment. And globally, one in nine people in the world today, that 795 million, are undernourished. That is the reality in terms of the globe around us. But what about here at home? Many of you are connecting with people right throughout the week who have got their own challenges, who have got their own struggles, who are going through their own impoverished season of life, whether that be financial stress or unemployment or family breakdown or harmful addictions and domestic violence. And the needs range, don't they, from food to employment to clothing to educational resources. People were often looking not just for someone to come alongside and help them or to take a couple of bucks out of our pockets and throw it their way, but someone to come alongside of them and show them some care, to show them some self-worth and a little bit of dignity. You see, it's overseas and it's also on our doorstep. I know you as a church are very aware of that. It's very exciting to hear that every month you're still going out to the community and interfacing with them on a Sunday and engaging where people are genuinely at, particularly in their felt needs, both physically, emotionally and spiritually. Now we can shut ourselves off, you see. The fact that it's overseas, the fact that it's on our doorstep, I wonder if we're still hearing God's call to bless the poor. See, we can shut ourselves off. It's not hard to do. In the fast-paced society in which we live, in this me-centered society that we live in, you can easily shut yourself off from this sort of call. Or can we embrace the plight of the poor? Can we respond with mercy and compassion? Which is exactly what Nehemiah did in the story that we're going to have a real brief look at this morning. Let me give you some context to the Bible verses I'm about to read out to you. See, Nehemiah was the third great leader in the Jewish restoration. As Zerubbabel, he was first. He came along first with, and led the first group of exiles back into Jerusalem in 538 BC. And with that, he supervises the building of the temple. Now, after this, about 80 years later, Ezra comes along. Ezra the scribe brings a whole lot of ministry reforms based around God's word. And a lot of good things happen. But in times, things degenerate. So 13 years after that comes Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah was burdened by God, particularly with the conditions that Jerusalem were experiencing at the time. So Nehemiah was needed. The Jerusalem wall was in ruins, and so the king gives Nehemiah permission to rectify a few things. So he conjures up a plan to rebuild the city walls, because he knew that the rebuilding of these walls would be imperative to this city's survival and also its thriving. And so he provides Israel with some genuine quality leadership that they desperately needed at the time. And there's much to learn from the story of Nehemiah, certainly in the areas of leadership principles, certainly in the areas of a building project. But we're going to look at one aspect of the story this morning that is often overlooked in the midst of this incredible story of Nehemiah. 
And it, uh, it's something that arises, a small element of the story that comes about during the building project itself. So whilst the rebuild was in full swing, an ugly internal problem arose. Let me kick it off from Nehemiah 5 verses 1 to 5. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we've had to borrow money to pay the king's taxes on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have had to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. That word powerless is a crucial word because you see people who are stuck in poverty often feel power often stuck in poverty through no fault of their own but powerless one because perhaps they don't have the skills and the resources to uh, to pull themselves out of the situation they're in perhaps they haven't experienced the education that others might have experienced that could allow them to pull themselves out of their their poverty stricken situation or perhaps it's because they're powerless they have not a voice in their community that they are stymied because others around them have all the power. And so they are stuck again. People stuck in poverty often feel powerless. So here we have the poor of Jerusalem. They're rising up in protest against the rich or the oppressive practices of their rich cousins. And quite rightly so, they're complaining about food shortages and excessive borrowings and inflation and how some people have been driven to the extreme measures of selling their own flesh and blood, their own kids, into slavery and it's still happening today around the world as many of you know and the people were saying enough is enough someone please help us these were difficult times for the people of Jerusalem the place was a mess and fortunately they find someone who is willing to listen comes in the form of Nehemiah we go and we reread when I heard their outcry and these charges I was very angry what you're doing is not right shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God Give back to them immediately their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves, their houses, and also the usury that you are charging them. The hundredth part of the money, the grain, the new wine, and the oil. So what's happening here is that when Nehemiah becomes aware of the plight of the poor, he becomes angry. Now, what infuriates him is not that the, the people are going through tough times. All economies go through tough times different swings and roundabouts in life what infuriates him this is a righteous anger that he's experiencing here what infuriates him is that some people were taking advantage of those who were in need and so he gets proactive he challenges their selfishness and he works to restoring equity and fairness and he does so with a dose of humility and compassion Nehemiah here provides us with a great example when you are confronted with the cries of the poor whether that be in the local scene whether that be in the global space wonderful model that he gives us here in response what does he do he listens he discerns and then he responds and i would argue it takes courage to do all of these three things it takes courage to listen it takes courage to discern it takes courage to respond so what does he do initially well he listens so amidst the busyness and focus work nehemiah still had time to listen in verse 60 you read i heard their outcry 
He really listened to them, which is not always easy to do when you've got set agendas, when you've got a busy project on your hands. I know what it's like in my life. If you're a little like myself, I'm a quite task-orientated sort of person. I've got my to-do list for the week ahead. I know exactly what the week's going to entail, and nothing's going to get in my way until I've got those little boxes ticked off. I'm not going to even have an ear for any voices that might encroach on my planned week because I've got things to do, and they are valid things as well. So I often miss the cries of the poor. I don't even give them attention. Why? Because I'm too busy in my own plans, in my own busyness. That's a trap that all of us can fall into, where we haven't got ears for the poor. We haven't even got ears for the Spirit of God, what He might be prompting us with and challenging us with because we're so fixed with what our week is going to look like and what life looks like for me right now. Sometimes we're too busy to even notice. We walk past a person who is genuinely and audibly crying out for help and some attention and some love, yet we don't even see them or hear them because, again, we're so focused on what we need to get on with and complete on that particular week. We can also become quite desensitized to the reality of poverty as well and the cries of the poor. That's probably because the images are there on our fingertips every single day now. The reporters all around the world telling us exactly what's happening. We see the images, as heartbreaking as they might be. We hear the stories of injustice, but we hear them so readily now, it's almost like water off a duck's back. They've stopped making an impact on a lot of us, where they don't even pull at the heartstrings. It's like we've got too used to them. It's like fiction to us. And Nehemiah, if anyone had an excuse to shut himself off from the cries of the poor, it would be Nehemiah. Massive project, huge vision that, remember, God gave him. So he's got a vision that God's given him to fulfill. Masses amount of people that he's actually leading. Those of you in leadership would know how hard it is to lead a group of people around a project like this. The spot fires he would have been putting out. The strategies that were unfolding. Yet Nehemiah, amongst all of that, still had ears for the poor. And he gave them his attention, even though he was flat out. He understood that the cries of the poor needed attention. So that's the first thing he does. He listens. And that takes courage, particularly when you've got your set of voices that you listen to that are enough for you. To allow new voices into your world actually takes a little bit of courage. Second thing he does is he discerns. What I'm talking about discern here is that, well, first of all, you've got to hear the complaint, don't you? Nehemiah hears the complaint. But he's got to work out, are these just a group of people who are having a bit of a whinge? Are they a group of sort of half-glass-empty types? Or is this genuine what they're actually talking about here, what they're complaining about here? What do I do with this? And so that's a challenge, isn't it? He's got to work out, is this a genuine complaint that needs some sort of attention and response to? And that's a challenge for us today too because there's a constant cry for help, isn't there? In our world, for so many charitable organisations asking for your help, asking for your attention, asking for a few bucks out of your pocket, can I or should I respond to all of them? Is the cry for help that I'm experiencing right now an honest one? Or am I being taken for a sucker here? And it's important that we are careful, that we're prayerful when responding to the cry of the poor and discerning what specific action God might be moving you into. And you can't respond to every presenting need. But what you can do is grow a heart of compassion, mercy, and love. And if you're trying to work out whether you need to or should be moving into the the compassionate space, engaging with someone or a people group who are genuinely hurting and doing it tough in life. Trying to work out what that looks like for you. What I would say is this, that defaulting to compassion, love and mercy, 
will always have you more closely aligned with God's heart than defaulting to judgment and cynicism. You can't go wrong by defaulting to compassion, love and mercy. So he discerns. And again, discerning takes courage because discerning takes time. And discerning might mean that you've actually got to spend the time even potentially having to walk down a new pathway that God has for you or walking into a, into a life where you become the hands and the feet and the mouthpiece of Jesus, which will cost you. But that's what discerning will do when you open yourself up to perhaps a new pathway that God has for you. The third thing he does there, he responds. And this is the hardest of all three. Because a response, that genuinely takes courage because responding means you've got to actually drop your own tools, perhaps, and actually sacrifice some of your own time and energy and plans and to do a complete 180 and get involved in someone's life that perhaps wasn't even on your, on your radar. And that's what Nehemiah does here. He didn't sign up to bless the poor. He signed up to build a wall and to help out the nation's future. Yet Nehemiah finds himself a little sort of sidetracked with this incredible call that God gave, gives him in the midst of the original call so he responds and this response here shows an incredible reverence towards God in verse 9 there you read shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God Nehemiah is saying to the people so Nehemiah is suggesting here that the people's selfish actions are actually a sign of disrespecting God and their reverence towards God will be seen in their compassion and help to those who are less fortunate therefore how we respond to the plight of the poor is actually a measure of our reverence towards God and as he responds he does so practically I love this about Nehemiah notice that he doesn't put down his tools he doesn't stop rebuilding the walls while he he sort of moves over here and starts dealing with the the cries that were that he was attentive to he keeps rebuilding he keeps fulfilling the vision that God's put before him he just does so now with a merciful edge his heart's been changed and he his outlook's just a little different And that's relevant to us today. Ministry in the church doesn't stop per se. Many of you are involved in a lot of cutting-edge programmatic initiatives that are bringing life to people, and quite rightly so. And I'm not here saying, hey, shut them all down. Move over here. It's more of a holistic approach that we take now in life. We open up our gaze. We're ready to engage with those random voices that might come our way that God invites us into. I talk about peripheral vision. Uh, you heard earlier, obviously, my, my chaplaincy involved in the AFL world. Some of the things I've noticed on the, the football field, what separates a great player from a good player, is peripheral vision. If you look at a guy like well, Scott Pendlebury from Collingwood, it's probably a great example, the captain of the Collingwood Footy Club, seems to have all the time in the world to distribute the ball. Things happen in slow motion around him as he works out what he's going to do with the ball. He sort of walks through traffic almost rather than runs through traffic. Incredible. Why? Because he's got this peripheral vision. He knows what's going on all around him before the ball even gets to him. When he receives the ball, he knows exactly what's going on 360. And there's been times in my life where God has often said to me, Mark, open up your peripheral vision. All you're doing is seeing what's in front of you. All you're doing is what's, what's in your diary or what those plans that you set for yourself back in January. That, that's all you're, you're marching towards. Open up your vision because when you do, you'll realize that God's already at work in the community around us, speaking into people's lives and inviting us to step into that space with him, to partner with him, to bless people, particularly the poor. And when you open up that peripheral vision, you'll see those opportunities. They are there. Now, Nehemiah, I love his response. 
And he gives us a great example to follow. He refuses to live the life of luxury that he was actually entitled to. Instead, he hosts people at his dinner table. He refuses to make money out of his position. Nehemiah refuses to lord it over others. Nehemiah is more interested in God and God's most prized possession, people. That's what drives Nehemiah. Now this model of response that I'm just talking about here, listening, discerning, and then responding, if you look at the life of Jesus in the New Testament, you'll see exactly the same model. The way that Jesus, time and time again, would come alongside the marginalized, the cast aside, the spat upon, the discards, and he'd come along and give them his attention, like that they were the only person in the world in that particular moment. He would engage with them. He would listen to their cries. He would discern in his spirit. And then he would respond out of compassion and mercy. Driven so much by compassion was Jesus in his interaction with people. Of course, to see them become physically touched and well, which would transition into a a spiritual wellness as they moved into eternity with him. Now look at the way those who were offended in our story this morning, those who treated the poor harshly, look at the way they respond. They do so positively and remorsefully. Verse 12, We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. And at this, the whole assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord, and the people did as they had promised. Now that's the sort of response that God is looking for from his people today. For Australian Christians, we must view our response to the poor as an integral part of our discipleship. And so I see it as word and deed, both complementing each other, both valid expressions of the gospel, packing a punch for Jesus in many ways. So it's proclamation and demonstration, coming to not, not one or the other, both together, which I'm sure as a church you are already living and growing in. And in a world today where more than one billion people live in extreme poverty, the way we respond to this is vital in responding to God's call in our lives to love our neighbor and the good thing is this we are seeing progress you don't often hear these stats you see the stats that i showed a bit earlier you'll often hear those but these stats are great since 2000 year 2000 over 1 billion people in the world have overcome the obstacle of poverty have been lifted out of poverty you know what overseas aid in the last 20 years has seen child mortality halved back in the late 1990s 12 million children under the age of five were dying of preventable diseases today it's 5.9 million still way too many but how astounding is that trend it's wonderful to see 90 percent of the world now has access to safe drinking water you couldn't say that 20 years ago why because churches like new community and others have been very much at the forefront of this turnaround in seeing people being blessed the poor being blessed around the world but as you can see by those stats i showed a little bit earlier there's still a long way to go for all people everywhere to experience the life that god created and intended for all people and i have stories of transformation that i could tell you over and over again the stories of transformation waiting to unfold as well you've seen one already young little shanto there from bangladesh Great little story there to see how his family and his community is certainly being transformed through the love of Jesus. Let me give you one other very practical story, one that I experienced myself when I visited Nepal. Actually, I'm going to Nepal this Thursday with a group of Baptist pastors to show them some of our work over there. So Nepal is a key country for us, one of the poorest countries in the world. Kathmandu is the capital city of Nepal. It's dusty, it's chaotic. You've got exposed wires everywhere through the streets and bamboo scaffolding, and it's, a, it's just... A, 
an obvious scene of poverty, particularly in the more regional areas and the outlying areas of Kathmandu, where we do a lot of our work with Baptist World Aid as well. I remember on this particular trip, going to this little place here called Lalitpur on the southeast of Kathmandu. Now, look, look at that beautiful scenery. It's lush, it's green, it's positive. You could, you could have a retreat there for a week. But uh, unbeknownst to us, looking there, there is just poverty after stories after poverty all the way through that hillside there. And that's where we do a lot of our work. And we came across this family on this particular day who'd been living in a makeshift humpy for years and years and years. And their daughter was always sick. They couldn't afford to send her to school. They couldn't afford to put uh, three square meals on the table every day. It was just really tough for this family. But things dramatically changed for them when they became recipients of a, of a Baptist World Day community development project. And the parents joined a self-help group. They learned how to run a business. They reared chickens. And uh, when we approached their home on this particular day, we were expecting to, to see maybe a couple of dozen chickens out the back in a wire chicken coop. But to our great surprise, we came across these two massive sheds as large as this auditorium, full of free-range chickens and a thriving business. And with the success of that business... They could obviously buy, they could buy land, they could erect their own home, they could send their daughter to school, they had enough uh, money to, for the medical supplies they needed to keep her well, they could teach others in their community to run a business just like them as well, totally transformed their life. That's a very practical story, but it simply came by being involved in a community development project where they learnt some of the skills that you and I would take for granted here in Australia. I've got other stories of empowerment too where whole villages have been lifted out of poverty, where we've seen many, many baptisms, because all the work we do overseas is linked to Christian organisations that have strong links to the local churches often. So I've seen lots of baptisms happen in the communities after being touched by Jesus and churches being planted. So many great stories when people in Australia have actually given a slice of themselves away and been generous. Isaiah 1.17 Learn to do right. Seek justice, encourage the oppressed, defend the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. You see, few of us can contemplate hungry children. I can't. Four growing, healthy children. Few of us can contemplate weeping mothers and despairing fathers and certainly minimal resources. But you know what? When you allow yourself to strip away your own excessive needs and just become a little vulnerable just for a moment, you can't help but ask, you know what, what can I do? In my privileged situation, in my affluence, what can I do? How can I contribute to this world around us? But you know, sometimes when you're faced with the magnitude of poverty, you might even ask yourself, but you know what, what difference can I really make? Not much, sure, not little old me on, on one wage or on a combined income. What, what difference can I make? Well, you can make a heck of a difference. I remember, again, standing on top of this mountain in, in Nepal, a few years ago now and I was speaking to our, one of our workers on the ground on this particular day and I said to him hey mate you must this must drive you mad how do you get up out of bed in the morning it must be depressing knowing how much need is in this mountain range how do you do it he goes you know what Mark if I looked at it that way I probably would be depressed but I don't look at it that way I wake up in the morning with a spring in my step because God's given me an opportunity to invest in people's lives, make a difference, and see transformation. And so we deal with this mountainous task, one mountain at a time. And once this mountain has been lifted out of poverty, we'll then just simply move to the next mountain. Once that mountain's been lifted out of poverty, we'll then move to the next mountain, until the whole mountain range has been lifted out of poverty. And that's the way that he tackles 
this issue in bite-sized chunks. So my invitation to you today is to, to join us at Baptist World Aid or other organisations like us, sure. But more importantly, join God. Join our redemptive God in his mission. And maybe affect some change. Whether it be one mountain at a time, might be one village at a time, one family at a time, might be just one life at a time. Maybe be one shopping trip at a time. And the res- your response this morning will be as varied as the person next to you, depending on what your context of life looks like right now, what, God, what opportunities God is presenting across your path as well to invest in people, particularly who are going through an impoverished season of life. I'm not sure what it's like for you, but certainly one of the ways you could respond is coming and seeing me and choosing one of those beautiful children and actually bringing them into your own family. Increasing your family this morning by choosing one of those beautiful children from Nepal or the Philippines or Sri Lanka, wherever it might be. That's one way you could respond. Or perhaps it's to shop ethically, to to, to just pay a bit more attention in terms of where I'm actually purchasing my clothing, particularly this Christmas as you come into this silly season because we'll do a lot of purchasing this Christmas. Think about the backstory to your purchases and what's happening in these countries that are actually supplying and manufacturing the, the things that we're buying and wearing in particular. It might be to advocate and speak up Visiting your local politicians and speaking up for those that can't speak for themselves. Maybe God's laying on your heart this morning to be generous to someone who's in need in your life, who's doing it really tough. I'm not sure what it's like, what it is for you this morning. But can I encourage you to, to listen carefully and give your attention to those cries of the poor that are there around us. And make sure you're reading the scriptures, won't you? Because when you read the scriptures, you can't escape God's heart. Rick Warren once said this. Now, I've got three advanced degrees. I've had four years in Greek and Hebrew, and I've got doctorates. How did I miss the 2,000 verses in the Bible where it talks about the poor? How did I miss that? I mean, I went to two different seminaries and a Bible school. How did I miss the 2,000 verses on the poor? Well, as you move into this week, I encourage you to take some time to listen to God's heart for the poor. Scripture shows us a God who who sees the poor, who hears, their cri- who hears their cries, is filled with compassion for them, is outraged at the injustices that are visited upon them and has a real desire to secure justice for them. And I trust that you hear this call to bless the poor. In fact, you haven't already. And join our compassionate God in reaching out with mercy to those who are very much in need. Go invite the, uh, the team to come and... and uh, Lead us in some song, and as they do, would you join with me? I'm going to just pray a short prayer. Let's pray together. Lord God, this morning again, we want to thank you so very much for the blessings that you have given us in our lives that come in so many and varied forms. And God, would you forgive us where we can take those blessings for granted at times, particularly those necessities of life like food and shelter, clothing, education, a great community like new community to hang out with and do life with. God, we are so privileged. And amongst that privileged life that we live, God, our heart is that we might grow a heart for the poor, that we might see the poor, the marginalized, the cast aside just as the way Jesus saw them. This is the way Nehemiah dealt with them and saw them too. That you might open up our spiritual peripheral vision and inviting us into the spaces that you're already working in, that we might be the hands, the feet, the mouthpiece of Jesus as we speak into the lives of those who are desperately in need, a physical, tangible level and a spiritual level. God, give us the courage to listen, the courage to discern, and the courage to respond. In Jesus' name.
Amen. Thank you.